I mean, social media is the best thing and the worst thing that ever happened to this country. The fact that you can say, hey, Siri, how long does it take me to get to uh, you know, Oklahoma if I drive? Or what's the weather in Toledo? Is, is fantastic. But the fact that when you're walking down the street, people are looking at their phones instead of looking where they're walking, or the fact that people don't interact with other, other humans half as much because they text. And I always say, we're grownups. Why are we texting? Pick up the damn phone. You know, let's talk. And so the blessing and curse of uh, social media is it's producing people that have a lot of knowledge about a lot of different things, some of which is useful and some of which isn't. But the lack of one-on-one, I wish that one day a week, America and the world would make you put down your iPads, your computers, and your phones and have a conversation one-on-one. When you go out to dinner, how many people are constantly you know, looking at their damn phones and seeing you know, who texted them or what emails came in as opposed to when we didn't have these things, you and I would just have a conversation. So the web is fantastic, and it's not. TikTok and Facebook, every one of those other uh, social media spots are great, and yet they're not. I mean, they're great to wish somebody a happy birthday or if you want to show pictures of your vacation. But um, do we really need to keep taking pictures of food? Uh, I mean, why do I care what your dessert looked like when you're in uh, you know, Cincinnati? I just find that to be bizarre. I've never done the food thing at all. I just, I've never gotten it. So um, I have a love-hate relationship with it. I think that many people use social media and think they're better at it than they really are. Literally, there are supposedly 850,000 podcasts available now. I'm going to tell you that uh, 849,999 suck, and, you know, 10 of them are probably good. The fact that there's mediocrity that's allowed because of the web and, and people having a microphone just disturbs me tremendously. That's a long-winded answer to a uh, probably a simple question. But uh, I love the Internet, I love uh, social media, and I hate it at the same time. I think that's relatable. It's also interesting because it's a mediocrity can rule, but meritocracy, some people are finding a platform to use <laughs> yes. through that. Yeah, it's true. It's also quite funny if you don't like pictures of food, but you dedicated some time to food television. <laughs> I did, didn't I? It's enough pictures of food out there. <laughs> yeah, blame me for part of that, you know? <laughs> Hi everybody, Mark Summers here, and today we will be unwrapping Guy Fieri. Now, if I told you everything this gentleman has accomplished, uh, we would have very little time for conversation, so we're going to learn about that along the way. And I just want to tell folks who are listening for the first time that the object of this program is to inform, educate, and of course, always entertain. So here's the question. What is the meaning of success? I would say it means different things to different people. And one of my favorite expressions is, the harder you work, the luckier you get. So with that said, I am going to welcome my dear friend, the very talented Guy Fieri. How are you, sir? I'm great. I'm great. That's quite the intro. I'll have you do my eulogy, please. (laughs) Not soon, I hope. Um, Here's a question I want to get out of the way. Uh, When I was doing research, and I think I knew everything about you, but uh, in looking up some video yesterday, uh, Guy Ferry, Guy Fieri. Nobody calls you Guy Fieri. And I've never, ever, ever seen you correct anybody on the air. So tell me the Fieri story and tell me why you're so nice to people when they mispronounce your name. Uh, it doesn't, you know, everybody says it the way they say it. And um, you know, a lot more things to do. You know, we're in the middle of an interview. We're doing something. And, you know, if they don't get it right, they don't get it right. I mean, we got any like Guy, you know, there's just Guy. So <laughs> I... I don't, you know me. I'm I'm pretty easy going about that stuff. I mean, so a I, I think people, doesn't call before and says, you know, the pronunciation is. Oh, the, oh, always do, always do. It's it's very widely known now how it's supposed to be said and or how it's supposed you know to be pronounced. 
certain people take it and deal with it and use it and do it. And certain people don't. And so I don't really get uh, it. You know, maybe it bothered me a little bit when I was younger or something, but now I just kind of look at it and say, at least you got the guy part, right? And tell me the 20 second version as to why you went from Guy Fieri to Guy Fieri. That was my grandfather's name. And, you know, they changed it. Uh, uh, it was changed at Ellis Island and kind of just, uh, you know, always, it was always something I wanted to, do and my sister wanted to do it and so we did it and uh it wasn't a you know people asked if it was a tv thing i I'd do it when i got on the tv and so forth i said no it's just uh you know something that i'm very proud of the heritage and very proud of the background went to italy took my dad and my dad turned 70 went back to italy and found the fietis um we did yeah we didn't have any connection with them and uh they didn't know about us either and so we went back to Italy and went to the town that my dad, that my grandfather was born in. And, you know, it was a very interesting story, the way he was raised and, uh, you know, basically an orphan and just the whole thing, how it all transpired. So when we met our cousins and we told them the story that we knew, like our side of the story, they told us their side of the story. And we put it all together and it's, uh, it's been awesome. Why do you think you've been able to accomplish as many things as you've been able to do? Oh, I, I mean, I first and foremost put a lot of it on my parents, you know, really, uh, in my opinion, successful people, successful business, successful in family, successful in projects and successful in community and so forth. And I think that those examples were always set. You know, I was always a hardworking kid and always had a lot of jobs and you know, did a lot of, you know, did a lot of stuff and always, always moving. Um, but you I say get, that Jim I, and Penny were hippies. So, and you were born in Columbus, Ohio, not in California, correct? Correct, correct. So, so when you say they're hippies, tell me what that means. 1968 is when I was born. I mean, they were right in the middle of it. My mom graduated Ohio State. My dad uh, flunked out of Ohio State. <laughs> they drove a green Econoline van. They moved to this little town that I grew up in called Ferndale. They moved to Ferndale with a hide of leather and 50 pounds of candle wax and just both self-made people, just really, you know, hardworking, determined people. But, and, and when I say hippies, that was the era, you know, my dad had long hair, my mom, really long hair. My mom is a redhead. You know, they wore, he wore a leather vest and, you know, with Elkhorn buttons on it and, you know, the, the whole thing, but not dope smoking hippies. My mom always says, you have to tell people, you say we're hippies, but you got to tell them we weren't doing drugs. We weren't that kind of hippie. But, you know, they were, they took what they had and made a life of it. You know, they left Columbus, Ohio when I was six months old and went to North or went to uh, Whittier, California. My mom taught school. My dad worked at the college. Uh, my dad later went to college and graduated, got his degree. But yeah, that was just kind of the era, you know, just so impressed with they, what they did, you know, coming from Ohio and really wanting to branch out and change their lives and live in a better place and on and on and on. So they're my, they they're my your world. How, how, how do they how do they influence your world? Uh, some people are born with uh, determination and passion, and other people get influenced by their surroundings. Was it a combination of both of those? Yeah, yeah. I was always a mover and a shaker. You know, I, I as a kid, um, there's a funny story my mom likes to tell. They had a uh, their first business was called the Abraxas, and it was a uh, um, hippie leather store. They made belts. 
Um, they sold jewelry. They made purses. They made leather vests. My dad was, you know, never went to school, of course, to learn any of this. He just taught himself. He, my dad can build, do anything. So um, we were having, you know, dinner was always a very important time of the of the family circle. And I remember sitting at the dinner table and they were talking about business being slow and things weren't going good and da, 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 da. And so the next day I went and took a bunch of belts that were hanging on the, I think it was six, hanging on the, on the rack and put them over my shoulder and went down to Blackie's, which was the coffee shop and walked through there and started selling belts to people really? in the coffee shop. And they called my parents and said, you got to come get guy. He's down here hustling the customers, trying to sell belts to him. Oh my. So I was always into that. I mean, I always had uh, a business of some sort, a lot of lemonade stands, um, Kool-Aid stands. And we lived in a little town that was pretty touristy because of how you know beautiful this little town is. It's a town called Ferndale. And uh, I would always have something going on, some kind of sale of selling something. I'd sell my toys. You know, they'd buy, the people would buy my toys and then <laughs> go into my parents' business and give back my toys. <laughs> When did the pretzel cart happen? Uh, I went skiing. We were skiing uh, up in Tahoe. And I'd never had a soft pretzel before in my life. I didn't even know what they were. And I just fell in love with them. I'm like, this is the greatest thing in the world. Salt, mustard, these doughy, soft, steamed pretzels. I'll tell you, Mark, I was so bummed out when I finally got to New York. I'd never been to New York City until I met you. And I was so bummed out when I got there. And I said, they said, you know, that's where the, the soft pretzel came from. Oh gotta go get one so the first thing i did is stop and go get one and i'm like that guy makes it that pretzel sucks it wasn't <laughs> steamed it wasn't doughy it wasn't i said oh that guy must be you know he must be a, a rookie he doesn't know so i bought it again i must have bought about 10 pretzels in new york before i realized that nobody was making them the way i made them because i was steaming mine i had a little steam tray in there and i would boil the water and it would steam the pretzel they were nice and doughy and soft. so anyhow and we're skiing in tahoe i spend all of my money my lunch money eating pretzels. My dad says, what did you have for lunch today? I said, pretzels. And he said, yeah, but I gave you five bucks. What'd you do? And I said, I'm pretzels. He goes, you ate 10 goddamn pretzels. <laughs> I said, yeah, they're the best things in the world. And I had been fired from my Kool-Aid business. My dad fired, fired me. fired from your Kool-Aid business. Come on. Well, because my, well, because I had a Kool-Aid stand. So there was this right next to my parents' leather shop was this little alcove. And I would set up my, my Kool-Aid stand and sell Kool-Aid to the, to the uh, tourists. And, you know, the kid, it's like, you know, five cents for Kool-Aid, and they'd give you a nickel or give you a quarter. And, you know, but my dog had stole my, um, my stir spoon for my Kool-Aid. So I was stirring it with my arm. So when my dad found out, when my dad saw that my arm was purple, <laughs> he, he, he fired me. He says, That's not, you can't do that. That's so, yeah, so, I, so I did the pretzel business. How old were you? I, I, I ate all these pretzels, and my dad said, well, if you love these pretzels so much, why don't you do a pretzel business? I was about fourth grade, fifth grade. And I said, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't know where would I get a pretzel. He says, well, go down and ask the guy that you've been buying the pretzels from. Go ask him if you can um, have the address to the pretzel place. I said, oh, okay, great. So I go down and I see the guy, Joe, whatever his name was. I said, hey, Joe, can I get the address to the pretzel place? And he's like, no. I mean, this guy's been my buddy for the last four days. You know, I'm buying all these pretzels. I go, why not? He says, why do you want the address? Do you want to start your own pretzel business and come and be my competition? I said, I'm 10. What? Give me the address, you know, please. No, wouldn't give it to me. So wow. I go back up to the lounge. My parents were after the day of skiing. And I've got, you know, I'm bummed out. My dad says, did you get the address? I said, no. 
He says, why wouldn't he give it to you? He says, because he said, I told him I was going to, you know, open my own pretzel business. He said, listen here, my dad, there's a, a thing we call in our family called the three knuckles. When my dad would put his hand down like this, he said, listen here, you go down there and you wait till that guy closes up his shop. And then you go out and when he throws that box away, you go get that box in the dumpster. So I waited, I hung out <laughs> down there. The guy threw the box away. I d dumpster diving, grabbed the box, brought the box up to the bar, give it to my dad. He tears off the address off the side of the box says go so that kind of determination and that kind of so you know that that's that's how it's always been in our family you know how tenacious i am about things and how driven and yes. a lot of that you know a lot of that comes from him but anyway long story short uh, i didn't have any money to build the pretzel cart so my dad took me down to the bank and henry weller was the bank manager and uh, my dad made me take out a loan from the bank for 150 dollars. really opening my own checking account i was in fifth grade now took it, opened a checking account, put the money in, had to keep my numbers, had to keep my check. And then we built the pretzel cart and put it on the back of a three-wheel bicycle. And I worked for about six months building the cart, put, you know, painting it, doing the whole, put the whole thing together. And I did that for years. I mean, uh, up until I was a sophomore in high school, I made, I think, I think we did the math. I think I made $20,000 over the course of my years as the, and it was called the awesome pretzel. Matter of fact, the hat. Oh, I love this. I love this. That's the original hat that I had. Oh my God. The That's Austin pretzel insane. cart. And then in eighth grade, I wasn't a very good student, Mark. I was too, uh, I mean, I was good at it. Whenever it was speech, you know, to give a speech or write a report. Great. But I wasn't really great at studying, but anyhow, I, I my teacher had this wonderful teacher who I nominated for uh, teacher of the year and she won this, this was years ago. And then I sent her on a trip. I get, they don't give you a prize. When the teacher wins, they just give a plaque. And I'm like, no, you've got to give a prize. She won. It was Miss Moyarty, Fran Moyarty. And, uh, who is a really good friend of mine. Great. She was actually, she was at my uh, star. She was oh, at really? the uh, star award. Yeah. So yeah, Miss Moyarty. And uh, so I gave her a, uh, a trip. I said, I put sent her on a cruise anywhere in the world. She wanted to go. Come on. But anyhow, she came to me one day and she said, guy, there's a contest called the, uh, the national history day and you should do a, a project for that. So I went home and told my dad and I did it on the history of the pretzel and the, and the vending cart. And I won and I won for the state of California. Wow. So I went to national history day in Maryland with my pretzel cart. And anyhow, so they asked a long question. No, I mean, see, this is what I mean about people, you know, that people say, well, he's lucky. You know, the old thing, the harder you work, the luckier you get. And you've been doing this since you were a kid. You have been determined and have been passionate about life. And uh, let's talk about hospitality. Was it the pretzel cart that inspired you to go into the hospitality world? No, I was just always uh, a food junkie. I mean, I just, every day, it's, it's the same around this house, you know, around our family, our kids. Uh, I mean, all I do is think about food. And I would fake being sick to stay home to cook. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and uh, I found the book, the joy of cooking and you know, those you know, food Bible, all the stuff you want to know is in this. And uh, I just always loved food. And then I went to France. I went to France when I was 16. That's a whole nother crazy adventure. Yeah. But I want to talk about that. Uh, that was an exchange student thing during high school. 
Well, it wasn't really an exchange student thing because I couldn't be in the program because I didn't speak French. So we had exchange students when I was a kid. When I was in elementary school, we had an exchange student from Norway and we had an exchange student from uh, Sweden. State your house. And I just, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. I mean, at a very young age, I had a pretty good perspective on how big the world was, or I thought I did. And I really wanted to be, uh, I wanted to go somewhere. I mean, I'm, I was hot to trot, but he couldn't go because in high school where we were, I mean, I only had 150 kids in my high school. Wow. And to take a, to take the language class, there was only one language class in Spanish. It's Spanish one, Spanish two, but you couldn't take the language class until you were a saw, uh, junior. So that wasn't going to work because you have to have two years. My mom was the director for the area for the exchange program called EF. And you had to have at least two years of the language and you had to be able to show that you could speak the language. So I, it wasn't going to work. And my parents always would have people over the house for dinner. I mean, if you were in our town and you didn't have a home to go to, you ate at our house. I mean, that's always the way it was. So long story short, this, this gentleman named Pierre Lachaud was in Napa selling corks from France and somehow connected with my parents through a cousin that said, if you're going to be, and it was Thanksgiving and he had, and he had nowhere to go, but the French don't celebrate Thanksgiving. Right. So anyhow, we invited him up. He came. And so we sat there at the dinner table and I said to Pierre, I want to go to France and go to school. And he said, great. Okay. And he says, why? And he told me, he says, I have a friend named Monsieur Pelletier that is the principal of a high school. I bet you could go there. I said, awesome. So I would write Pierre, this is back, no internet, no cell, you know, no phones. Back then the phone line went under the ocean kind of stuff. <laughs> so I would write Pierre all the time and tell him I wanted to go. And so finally Pierre took me serious and said, okay, if you really want to go, here's what we need to do. So I went to my parents. I was 14. I went to my parents. I said, okay, I'm going to go to France and go to school. And my dad says, you have to be able to speak the language. He said, if you can pass French at the junior college, with a beer better, you take it for a year, you can go. So at lunch in high school, I was a freshman in high school, uh, sophomore in high school, my mom would drive me to the junior college and drop me off and I would take the class and then drive me back and I'd go back to high school. And I passed with a beer better, it took two semesters. And I couldn't speak goddamn word of French. I mean, I didn't know, the, the teacher was this old drunk guy named Monsieur Brewer, Samuel Brewer. And he would just drink wine and tell us stories of the Champs-Élysées and go on and on and on. And all the high, all the college girls thought it was cute. This little freshman kid was going to the, you know, was going to school to go to France, you know, blah, 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 blah. So they would all help me in the class. I, could pa I passed with beer better. My parents said, okay. So I stayed in, a, I lived in a boarding house. I didn't even live in the family, like an exchange family. People just rented me a room. I went to the high school. And why? Uh, why did you want to go there? I was I lived in a town of 1400 people. I knew the world was big. I needed to go. I needed to go and you know find the adventure. And when I got there, I lost my mind. I mean, I, I was like, wait a second. Food is a whole nother realm of OMG. I mean, I I I, I baguettes, French bread out of this world, you know. Yep. And I traveled a lot, you know, I was 16, but very independent. I mean, I went to Norway, I went to Belgium, Germany, Switzerland. I was always jumping on a train, going places. I, mean, I didn't have anybody to tell me I couldn't. So you were 16 by yourself in foreign countries, 
running around, soaking up Raising the culture, hell. the food. Oh yeah, it was, and food was, it was just so amazing. The school lunches, Mark, were so amazing at this high school that the boarding house fed me, the, the, this family, the Drees was the name of the family. Very strange people. Uh, I only lived there for a couple months. I lived there, Mark. So I lived in it because the principal knew the, the, the family, the Drees was their name and knew that they rented a room. So he said, you know, here's a family you could go stay with. And the family, I mean, the mom was a horrible cook and she was the Madame, Madame Dries. She was a real, I mean, she was hard ass. And the dad was very, the dad was scared of her. You know, they, their kids were crazy. I mean, it was, it was a whack situation. I lived on the third floor of this, in a storeroom. But I wouldn't tell my parents any of the details because I didn't want to have to come home. But the family was so bad and the food sucked so bad that I met some kids at school, some Norwegian kids that were from Spain, but lived in France. And they knew the family that I lived with and how crazy they were. And they took me to their house and I met their parents and they said, you could come stay with us. So I moved from one family to the other family, never told my parents. And you're 16. I'm, I'm still sort of shaking my head that your parents would even allow this to happen. Crazy. Yeah, it, it truly is. So you get back from France, you're 17 years old, you graduate from high school. Were you never working at restaurants? High school. Never graduated, did, didn't go back to high school. I never knew this. <laughs> you don't have a high school degree? That's, that's seriously. Yeah. I, took my, I took my GED when I was 20. Oh my. Um, but no, I never graduated high school. I only really had two years of high school. So you when know, you came back from France, year. what were you doing? Well, I went to school in France, but I couldn't speak. I mean, I spoke at a third grade level. But okay, know? so now you, you finished that for a year though, and you come back to California. Did you right. get a job? So it was the day school started. It was the day high school started, my senior year. I was sitting at the dinner table, having breakfast. My dad says, so what are you gonna do? I said, I don't think I wanna go to high school. I mean, I just got done ripping through Europe, man. I was, I was you know, high school, I'm gonna go do this routine. No way. I said, I'm going to go get a job. So I'm driving down the road. My friends are all pulling into high school. And I just drive by the high school and I drive up and I drove to Eureka and I went and got a job as a bus boy in a restaurant at the fancy restaurant in our town and quickly became a flambe captain, a tableside chef, you know, cooking with the ruffles and the tuxedo and the whole thing. And uh, the high school called my parents and said, guy didn't, we know guys in town. He didn't show up for school. My dad says, yeah, I don't think he's coming back to school. Oh like, you got to, you got to talk, you know, you got to explain to him. It's education is necessary. And he goes, he, he's not coming back. I thought I knew everything about you. I had no freaking idea. I went to college. I went directly to college. I mean, yeah. I started and I was, but see, I was only 17, but I'd already been in the system at the junior college because I took the French class a couple of years prior. So when I went to the junior college and signed up, I was already in the system. They let me just go. No one asked what I, my age was or what I was doing. And I just started taking classes. And so I took classes there and then I went to Sacramento and I took classes there, but see, I never took the SATs. So I couldn't get into any state schools because I didn't have any SATs course. <laughs> so so I mean, you went to UNLV, right? So I, but if you transfer out of state into another college and you have, uh, you have credits to transfer, they didn't ask for the SATs. Man, I, I wish I knew that back in the day, man. 
<laughs> I did so poorly on my SATs. I owed points at the end of that thing, man. So, I'm not kidding you, right? Oh my God. That's crazy. So you do four years at UNLV. Uh, what was it like being in Vegas? Uh, did you have jobs in the restaurant world or were you just going to school? And- so my dad, you know, my dad, you know, my dad, my parents, my right. dad was always so, uh, involved in my, you know, my career and my education and my foundation of, you know, what I was going to be. And he knew that I wanted to be, that I wanted to own my own restaurants and that I wanted to be, um, you know, he knew, he knew where I was going. Yep. He said, uh, and I couldn't get a good job down there as a cook because I didn't have the availability because I went to school. So I waited tables. I could bartend because I wasn't old enough. You know, I was only 18. So I went and worked in the meat business. I worked in the meat packing in, in a, in a commercial, in a uh, USDA inspected meat plant. And I drove truck. I started at the bottom, started packing boxes, cleaning the floors, did a little bit of butchering, but I moved up in the ranks at the meat processing. I was a salesman. Um, that's, I got some stories about selling meat in Vegas. You know, here's my price sheet. My price sheet was an envelope, you know, full of $5,000 that I would give the price sheet to, to the purchasing agent. You know, everybody was on the take. It was crazy. Really? Oh, like you've never seen. And I learned a tremendous amount about the restaurant business from the other side. So I had this great, you know, I I was working in restaurants uh, all my life. It's all I'd done. So restaurants, now I got this purveyor side of things. It really probably was one of the most insightful learning experiences that I had because I realized how much the purveyor can make you or break you. Um, And it was just awesome. So I did that through college. And then I graduated when I was 21. I graduated from UNLV and went into corporate restaurants. The day I graduated, my dad was there and I said, okay, so I'm going to go to chef school. And he said, why? And I said, I don't know. Isn't that what everybody does? And he goes, nah. He says, I think you just go out there and see what you, he says, you're a great cook. He says, why don't you just go out there and see if you need it? If you need it, then you could just stop and you can go to chef school. Uh, okay. That sounds like a good idea. So now I went and worked in corporate restaurants to really learn about everything was always a plan. Like, what am I going to go learn from this? Mm-hmm. And so I went and worked in the corporate restaurants and really learned all the corporate structure about how you really successfully run restaurants. And um, I got to be the chef one day a week. It was a huge restaurant. I mean, we did the restaurant back then in 1990, the restaurant was doing 14 million a year. I mean, it was a monster restaurant down in Long Beach. Really? So I, so I did that for about two years. And then I went to another corporation to the Luises. And then I was the director of, you know, training and so forth. So I learned what I basically did is I just continued to fulfill all of these facets to my, uh, to my education in the world of restaurants. So when I did my own restaurants, I was going to know, what to do. And, you know, I, I sometimes look back about it and say, yeah, I wish I'd gone to culinary school so I could learn how to bake. Cause I don't bake very well. I don't like to bake, but you know, my dad was right. I, I, I needed to go learn other things. Those, that, that education was more important for me. But you got that foundation. I had an Asian once who said that most acts are built upside down, like an upside down pyramid. So they tip over, but you built that solid base and learn things. Cause you had apparently a, a, a goal so you go back to uh, Northern California. Tell me about how you open up Tex Wasabi's in your group of restaurants. So I uh, met my wife, met Lori down there in Long Beach. And we were pregnant with Hunter. And I wasn't going to raise a kid in L.A. 
that was i mean i'm i'm such not a city person i mean you know me i'm not the cities are not my is not my jam so we went to ferndale i dropped Lori off in ferndale packed everything i had in a trailer i still own the trailer this 20 foot long trailer like you haul a car on and i built it in the driveway of my you know, this little house we rented in long beach packed all of our shit in it drove up Lori was six months pregnant and then I came down to Santa Rosa, this, you know, Sonoma County where we are now, had two Rottweilers, $5,000, six month pregnant wife and no job and rented a house, worked two jobs. And I would go and I, and I went to the work in these restaurants as a, as a waiter. I was 24 years old, yeah, 24. And I was waiting tables and these people would go, you're a really good waiter. Would you like to be the manager? No, I don't want to be the manager. Like, and I had to lie on all my res on my applications because I, you know, I was the I was the district manager of eight restaurants in Los Angeles. Like, I, you know, Luis's was the name of the restaurants I had down there. So um, I'll, they would call the general managers of these restaurants and, yeah, do you know Guy Fieri? Like, yeah, like, well, he's applying as a waiter. Is he a good way? You know, <laughs> these guys are lying through their teeth about it. But anyhow, we came up here. The first restaurant we opened was Johnny Garlic's. And my business partner was the guy that I, that I was the kind of my counterpart in running these Luis's restaurants. And we came up here. I had no money. We tried to get an SBA loan, but that's a pain in the ass. It takes too long. Well, for us, it was. So we had a deal and we had this really great deal coming, you know, come available. And I called my parents and I said, dad, I need, I need $50,000. And I told him the whole story. He said, Hang on a second. Hey, Penny, guy needs 50 grand. Call Henry Weller at the bank and see if we can get a second on the house. No kidding. Mailed me the $50,000 check and we opened our first restaurant. And eventually built that concept, Johnny Garlics. We had seven Johnny Garlics and, and uh, two Tex Wasabis. And uh, then I sold them to my business partner um, about five years ago. And then he, uh, he closed them all. He closed them all? I didn't know that. Yeah, very sad. Very sad. It is. It is. Let's step back and uh, talk about Lori a few seconds. What was it that uh, uh, attracted her uh, to you? And I think she deserves a medal. I've been to your house many times when uh, at the last minute, seven gnarly chefs walk in, uh, turn the kitchen upside down. Lori opens up a bottle of wine and pretty much goes in the bedroom. <laughs> yeah, I don't, you know, she, she's a different... Uh... I guess the universe sends you what, you know, what you need or what, you know, how she puts up with it. She's been amazing though. I've been very blessed. You've been married 25 years, I think. Yeah, right 25 now. years. Wow. You know, to go from being a restaurant owner, I was pretty well known in our town. I did always did a lot of philanthropy and I always did a lot of stuff. And I was a little bit more wild back in the day. But to go from that, which was already kind of a difficult position to have for her, and then to go into the TV thing, you know, she's just, uh, she's stuck through it all. So April 23rd, 2006, what's that mean to you? Was that when Guys Big Bite aired? It's when you won uh, Food Network Star. The 23rd of April? No, we, it, it happened, that happened uh, before That's Christmas. Christmas? No, it was before. No, it, it, it happened. 2005 is when it happened. It aired. Yeah, it aired April 2013. It aired in, in 2006. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a trip. I don't even know what I was doing there. That was a, that was a bunch of buddies trying to be funny. 
telling me that I should go do this television show. I you had no interest, it. right? Or knew nothing about it? I never even seen the Food Network. Now, I who are these guys it. who put you up to this? Two buddies, a guy named Rob Olmstead, uh, who made my TV commercials for my restaurants back in the day, and a guy named Mustard, Matt Sprouse, on my barbecue team. And they both told me that I needed to be on the show. Lori told me I needed to be on the show. And I hadn't seen the show. I did, like I said, I hadn't even watched Food Network. People ask me all the time, do you watch Food Network? I'm like, I work in the restaurant business. I cook every day. And you think I'm going to come home and watch a show about people <laughs> cooking? <laughs> Crazy. So the kid next door even told me, you need to go on that, 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 that show. So I told everybody that I would do it. And I think all my friends want to see, you know how crazy my friends are. I think they just want to see me do it. So I would go lose and they could laugh. I think, you know, oh, look at that dumbass. So I said that I was going to do the show and uh, we shot the, the video. Yep. Well, if you notice in the video, I'm a complete smart ass and I'm not, I have no intention of going on. I'm just doing it to get everybody off my back. And that's the way I did the, my audition tape or whatever it was, it was in that fashion. So I didn't mail it in. And Mustard calls me one day. He says, you mail on that tape? And I said, oh, I forgot. I said, wasn't the due date yesterday? He goes, yeah. And I go, oh, I can't believe I forgot to mail it in. And he goes, well, good, because they just extended it a week. <laughs> so now you got to do it. So now I have to do it. So I mail it in. I don't know if you even know this story. This is a very funny, this is a very funny story. Bob Tushman uh, knew uh, uh, quite a bit about this story. So anyhow, so I go and do the show. Six months after I'd done the show, I get a phone call from the casting agent. And she tells me a story about how it works. So I sent in a DVD, my audition tape. Well, Rob Olmstead made TV commercials. So he's the one that shot it. And he's the one that put it onto the DVD. And I guess DVDs weren't that popular back then or it was new or whatever. Back I don't know. The old days. But when I sent it in, they were expecting a VHS. So... They gave it to the casting agent, which they had already cast Food Network Star 2. It had already been cast. Everybody was set. Okay? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. So she goes and puts this DVD in, but can't get it to play. Something's wrong. Either the formatting was wrong, whatever. Couldn't get it to play. Throws it in her purse. Okay? She tells me this whole story afterwards. Goes to her apartment that night, throws her bag on the table, and her bag falls over, and this DVD slides out and it reminds her that she needs to look at this DVD. She puts it in the DVD player at her house and it plays. And she said, that was it. Hold the presses. Calls Bob Tushman says, we need to have a meeting tomorrow morning. Bob Tushman she was the head of programming at food network at the time. Takes her DVD player out of the wall, <laughs> unplugs it from her stereo and takes it and brings everybody in. All the executives, Susie Fogelson, Bob Tushman, everybody brought them all in and says, you got to see this guy. So they plug it in and she says, you guys have got to see this guy. And I don't know if you've ever seen the audition tape, but it's, yeah, yeah it's being a smart ass. And they're watching this and she's watching, she says she's watching Bob Tushman and Bob Tushman's looking at her like, what in the hell did you give us? <laughs> And then at the end of it, you know, I do my cooking piece and they're like, okay, great. Bring the guy. Let's get him. Let's, let's go. So that evening 
they call me from the Food Network. I'm sitting on the couch with Lori watching, I think it was Monday Night Football or something. And I hear answer the phone with a Rhode Island accent. No, I don't know. I, he's not here. He's, you know, no. Oh, hold on. Covers the phone and goes, it's who? She goes, it's the Food Network. They want to talk to you. I said, yeah, right. She goes, hang on a second. So she brings me the phone. I go, hello, Food Network. What do you want? Did you really? And they go, would it be better if we called back at another time? <laughs> I'm like, what? Who is this? this? You know, is this Paul? Is this Dustin? You know, who's messing with me? And uh, they said, no, no, no. We saw your video you sent us. And we want to talk to you about coming on the show. Now I realize it's real. They said, there'll be a package at your door tomorrow. If you'd like to be on the show, we'd love to have you. I'm like, what? And we were pregnant with Ryder. I mean, yeah. We were like eight months pregnant. I'm mm -hmm. like, I don't know if I can do this. When do I have to be there? I said, you have to be in New York on Tuesday, next Tuesday. I don't know. I don't know if I can, you know, blah, 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 blah. Anyhow, that was, that was the whole story. So Food Network star meant nothing to you. You have great friends who put you up to it. You get on the show. The first day you're there, what are your thoughts? Like, you're just like, this is, this, who cares about this? What is this? I, I, not that I didn't care. I mean, I was very, it was, it was a great experience. I said to myself, you know what? At least I'm going to get a free trip to New York. You know, this will be First fun. time there, right? I'm sorry? That was your first time there? First time in New York, yeah. Crazy. So at least I'm going to get a free, at least I'm going to get a trip to New York. Maybe I'll meet Emerald, you know? I want to see how this <laughs> I want to see how television's made, whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm always up for a, you know, for a, a, an adventure. So the day I get there, it's my dad's birthday, November 19th. I show up, I come walking in. I'm in a leather, uh, a yellow leather jacket. Yep. I remember shorts and flip flops and it's 19 inches of snow, a foot and a half of snow in New York city. Yep. And I come walking in and everybody looks at me like, who is this idiot? Yep. And all the other contestants on the show are all standing there in their chef whites, you know, in their, in their jackets, they're all standing there and everybody goes through their their resume. I went to the Cordon Bleu. I studied in Paris. I didn't listen. <laughs> I look at everybody and I'm like, hmm. yeah, uh, I dropped out of high school when I was 16. Uh, I own four restaurants. Uh, you know, I don't even have a chef coat. I, I cook in a t-shirt, you know, and everybody's just like, what? You know, who is this guy? And, and it was season was two. Season one uh, went so well that they decided to do season two. And your group, because <laughs> I was hosting the show at the time, were nice folks, but there were, uh, everybody was kind of goofing off. Uh, the restrictions weren't as uh, grand as they are now in reality television. And you guys were sort of uh, staying out too late, carousing and doing things that we don't want to talk about right now. And I called no, him. Nobody did, by the way. Nobody on that show did except me. Really? I, I would go out the fire escape and go down to the bar and hang out. And they had to, you had to turn your phone in. They told yeah, us that. I remember that. So, so I, just, I, I got the feeling. I gave him a dummy phone. Every time <laughs> we'd turn the phone in, I'd give him a dummy phone. Seriously? They'd have that. I had my phone with me the whole time. My wife's pregnant back in California. Like, I'm not going to have my phone. Mark, there was, a, I don't know if you know this story, but they would, the, the PAs were not, you know, used to reality TV. And so uh, they'd set down their clipboard and I would read this schedule of what was coming up. 
and tell everybody. I never did anything for my own gain. I did, you know, I shared with everybody on the team, uh, all the contestants. We were very collectively strong as a team. We always took care of each other. Yep. And uh, they kept us in this one room. You know the room in, in Food okay. Network. Yep. They kept us in this one room. And the food was terrible. I mean, it was, I couldn't believe it. I was going to Food Network and I thought they were going to have this awesome food, this horrible caterer. I didn't realize production companies and all the different shit that went on. You know, everything was, I thought was done by the Food Network. But anyhow, I'm in this, in this back room. So in the closet, I find this computer and I plug it in and it boots up and it's got the internet. So we would all take turns being on the computer. So when they would come in and ask questions like, well, where's Reggie? Oh, he's got a headache. He's laying down in the closet. Uh, where's Nate? Uh, he's stretching. He's stretching. He's in the closet. And everybody would get a chance to go check their emails and oh check. God. Yeah. And do this whole thing. Oh, we had a whole underground system of how we handled the production company. I had no idea. I, well, obviously you guys were having way too much fun. And uh, I, I called a little meeting one morning. Well, I brought all you guys in and said, Hey, I don't think you guys are taking this serious. And I don't think I remember it. I remember how, it. Uh, your head in the door. It was in that that's room. Right. And so, um, the competition then came up where we were doing a pastry, uh, I think at Sur la Table on a Sunday. And everybody said, uh, I was host boy at the time, but there were judges and exec producers and I would stick my head into those meetings. And everybody said, Fietti's going down on this one. There's no way in hell he'll be able to do this. I was going down. You I, were going down. That. And huh? you made um, remarkable stuff. Uh, as I remember, it was Sesame Street based and, and made pastries that nobody could believe. And you won that competition handily. So what it was, we got back from a full day of production and we got there and there was notes on all of our doors because they had, they'd rented us apartments in this apartment building. It was kind of like the, you know, furnished apartments. And it said on everybody's door, meet in the common room, which was an apartment. They just took all the furniture out of meet in the common room at midnight. So we go down there and on the counter, there's a note that says, take these cupcakes and you get a box of decorating stuff for cupcakes and make these 12 cupcakes decorated from your culinary point of view. CPOV was what we called it back then. Okay. I hate cupcakes. <laughs> so everybody's you're not a doing guy and you're not a, a, a baker. I'm not a sweets guy. I'm not a, you know, so everybody's doing their stuff. I'm making my cupcakes about love. I'm making my cupcakes about family. You know, and I'm, what is that stuff? And I said to Reggie, Reggie was uh, a baker, really good baker. And he was taking the fondant and rolling it out. And I go, what is that stuff? He says, it's uh, like a sugar paste. I've never seen it in my life. I never, I never iced a cake in my life. I said, what do you do with it? Well, it takes color. If you move it together, it'll take color. And you can, you know, no. I'm just sitting there. He's like, are you going to decorate your cupcakes? And I said, no, I don't have any, I, I don't know. I, I'm going home. I told the producer, I go, this is it, Emily. There's the name of the, I'm sitting there and I look at the cupcake and the top of the cupcake looks like a hamburger bun. So I take out the X-Acto knife and I cut the top off. I'm like, look at you guys, it looks like a hamburger bun. <laughs> so I grab a piece, there's some fudge in the thing. So I got some fudge out and I put it together and I put it, I go, look, hamburger. 
Nobody was entertained. I was. I thought it was funny shit. How do you do that fondant stuff again? So I took a piece of fondant, made it green, rolled it out, cut it like a piece of lettuce. I put it on there. Look, it's a hamburger with lettuce. So I made a tomato. I made another patty. And I built this little miniature cheeseburger out of the cupcake. Yep. I set it down. And then I took the leftover parts of the cupcake that got the top, top cut off. And they had runts. Runts are this candies that, you know, banana, apple, you know, these different, these little uh, kind of tart, crunchy candies and gummy worms. And I said, huh, I'll take this. Kind of looks like a trash can because it was ribbed. I dug the center out of it, wrapped it in the fondant, filled it up with the gummy worms, and I made a trash can, like Oscar the Grouch, like a trash can with the stuff coming out of it. And I put a lid on it, you know, made it out, you know, made the lid. And so I had that. So I had a burger and a trash can. And I did another one, and I made a coffee cup. And then I made, I took the filling, I had all these crumbs left over, and it looked, reminded me of rice. So I rolled the fondant out again, made it black, made nori, put those crumbles on it, looked like rice, stuffed it, rolled it up, took uh, uh, hot tamales, cinnamon candies, and rolled them with the rolling pin and squished them out thin. They look like uh, uh, tuna. And I put that on top, because I had a sushi restaurant. And all of a sudden, the producer comes over and goes, what are you doing? I said, nothing, why? And he goes, well, you're not decorating the cupcakes. You, you tore the cupcakes apart. I said, nobody said that you had to do the cupcakes the way they're doing. I do it my, I'm doing it my way. You're, you're, no, you're not supposed to do it that way. I said, well, 22-year-old PA telling me I'm not doing it right, and I'm 34 years old. I'm like, yeah, piss off. <laughs> so she runs and goes and gets Ronnie Weinstock. And you knew Ronnie. The exec producer. In comes Ronnie with a camera team and she says what's going on in here she goes guy what is that i said well you asked for my culinary point of view here's my culinary point of view hamburger i love coffee <laughs> a sushi roll it she goes you're out of your mind i said well i might be out of my mind but this is the best i can do and so it's about three in the morning and we have to be up to leave at seven to go to sur la tabla so Everybody's putting their cupcakes in their thing. And so I put my cupcake things in the plastic container and I take them with me and we go to Sir La Tabla. Well, little did I know that everybody was just completely blown away that this is the direction I had gone with this. I didn't know, I had no anything about it. So we get there and they make me the first demo. Now I'm dead, okay? Because now I got to ice this cake. So I'm talking to Reggie before I go on. I'm like, <laughs> how do you ice the cupcake? He goes, don't do it too hard, you'll tear it. Oh shit. <laughs> so, uh, so I get there and you have to do the culinary point of view and you have to do this cupcake demo. And I get up there and I said, Hey, so my culinary point of view is my kids. And, uh, so if my son Ryder Hunter was going to have a birthday party, I couldn't give him a regular cupcake. This is what I would do. I cut the top of the cupcake off. I dig out the center of it. I put a bunch of the candies in the center of it, put a little, put a little bit of the icing, put it on top, put an H on the top of that, throw some more candy on top of it. I said, this is a surprise cupcake. And the crowd, oh my, and as I walk back, and this, this is what everybody that, you know, I know from the production world, you have your side of the story, but that's when everybody said, oh, okay. If he could beat this, 
if he beat the the cut the you know the the baking thing the cupcake thing in that way that's when they said it was on and the rest is history as they say um so let's talk about winning food network star you're successful you're a bit of a rebel you're doing quite well uh in northern california you got a wife a baby on the way one child already there what did food network star do to change your life It, uh, what, what, what the best thing was, it was a whole nother level of education. I mean, I love to learn. I'm a, I'm a junkie for it. I want to know stuff. I want to grow. I want to be smarter. I want to be bigger. Power, you know, I want knowledge is power. And so here I am now doing something that I'm 100% unaware of. I have no idea how this works. And you knew, I mean, I was calling you for advice all the time and it was like a whole new world, but it was in the vein of food. You know, it was in that, it was in something I loved. So I got to do food and now take on this new adventure. And it was awesome. I mean, I, I, I'm so thankful for the opportunity and still try to be as, you know, as good to the network as I think the network was to me. But I, you know, it almost went, it almost went south. You know, the, the deal with the network almost went south. I was doing my show, Guys, uh, guys Big Bite, you know, my, my cooking show during the day, which I love, still my favorite show. And they called me and said, we have a pilot that we want you to do. And I said, okay, thank you. You know, so I did it with, it was Atlas Media. So I flew out and it was a show called Gotta Get It. What was and, that? I don't know about that one. Oh, you don't know this story? No, that's a no. doozy. So uh, I shoot for four days with them. It's a oven that talks to your phone. It's a two-speed, it's a, it's a blender that's on a two-stroke motor, uh, a ball that you put milk and sugar in and, with, and ice, and it makes ice cream. So it's all these, got to get it, all these chef tools. And so I shoot all over New York, Brooklyn, the whole thing, doing this got to get it show. So we do the show. It's a one-hour show. And... Uh, network green lights it for 13 episodes and they call and tell me this guy the the, the uh, producer calls me and says hey great news we got you know greenlit and i said uh okay well congratulations i, I said i don't want to do the show he says you don't want to do the show i said no i did the pilot you know it was cool thank you you know i, I it was a great experience but i don't want to do the show i'm not a i'm not a gadgety chef that's not my thing that that doesn't i really don't no, no, you don't understand. The, you did the, the pilot, and that, and now the network wants 13 of these shows, so you need to do the shows. I said, man, man, but I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do the show. So the owner of Atlas Media calls me. He says, what's going on here? I just put a bunch of money invested in you to do this show, and you, we got greenlit, and you need to do the show. I said, I'm not going to do the show. I really appreciate the opportunity, but I, I'm not going to do the show. So then Bob Tushman calls me. He says, guy, uh, we greenlit the show. You need to do the show. He says, I'm not doing the show. Now I'm pissed. I'm, I'm not doing the show. I promise you I won't do the show. Brooke Johnson calls me. She <laughs> says, can I understand this right? You just got on our network, and we're giving you a primetime show, 13 episodes, and you're turning it down. I said, yeah. She said, why? I said, because the show sucks. I said, I don't want to do some dumbass show like that 
<laughs> okay. That was it. So nobody said a word about it. Nothing ever came across my desk again. And about two months later, I get a call. What would you think about a show of traveling around and going to funky little restaurants? And I said, that's my kind of show. You know, that, yeah, I like that. And that's how Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives came about. Yeah, you called me in the middle of that other thing. I remember that now. And you said, Summers, this thing sucks. How do I get out of it? I remember that. Yeah, it sucked. They were, so, <laughs> they were so pissed. Well, and the thing was, is I turned down so much work. And not because I didn't want to work and not because I don't work hard. I just didn't want to be with my family. So there was a lot that I probably could have done. If I moved to New York or moved to, remember Guys Big Bite was shot in New York for five years, yep. then shot in LA for three years till we finally moved to Northern California. Um, and we're still doing that show. We call it Guys Ranch Kitchen now. But yeah, I turned down so much stuff and I just told him, I, you know, I told Brooke, I said, I thank you. I really appreciate all the work and I really appreciate the opportunities, but my family comes first and I just can't be gone this much. And it was so funny because everybody was so mystified how you could have all of this and not do it. And I just didn't do it, you know? And I think it worked well for me because I think it, it put me into shows and gave me the opportunity to create things on my terms in my way. And now I produce everything, you know, now it's all my, my stuff, but, um, so how do yeah. you prepare for that? You won this competition. You had uh, the gonads to tell them, yeah, you want to pick me up, but I'm not doing it. I mean, you know, people in this industry, they, they cut off their, you know, you know, what they <laughs> cut off to get these jobs. They're giving you this opportunity. You say no. Okay. And you have always been family first. There's no question about that from day one. Okay. And, and I always say, when people say, tell me about Guy Fieri, I always say he wouldn't give you the shirt off his back. He'd give you the skin off his back. I always say <laughs> if I was coming up highway five and my car got a flat tire and three in the morning, I could call Guy in Santa Rosa. He'd drive down and get me. Okay. That's the kind of person you are, but how do you prepare for the type of success that you now have based off this one television program? You know, I don't know. I, I think it's on the same principles and the same foundation that I've always lived my life under. And that is, you know, be the best person you can be. Don't take yourself too serious. Just be in the moment. Treat everything with respect. Treat people with respect. But now I'm, I'm watching a, a video of you uh, over the holidays. And um, now I'm going to have a mental blank. Uh, Jonathan Waxman has written a book and you decide to do an hour on YouTube or something and I'm watching. And guys like Waxman, Emeril are now saying, Guy, I respect you. I couldn't have done some of these things without you. Um, it's flipped. You looked up to a lot of these folks and now they're going, oh my God, without Guy Fieri, this would have never happened for me. H how does that feel? Well, I, I still do look up to them. You know, I still, I still have that. There's a word that we use in our family um, that my sister taught me before she passed. She actually, I learned it while she was passing, you know, from cancer. And that's the, the word is namaste. And I have a tattoo on my arm right there. My sister's mm -hmm. tattoo. And namaste means, my interpretation of the word namaste means, the God in me, the power in me, 
recognizes the power in you. The, if you really think about people, Mark, everybody is the center of their own universe. So when you, when somebody sees the world, they see it from their perspective. The world is around them. They are them and the world is there for them. And I think that when you treat people and you see people in that respect, that they are powerful and, and need to be treated as such and need to be regarded as such and recognized. And all you can do is if you honor them and respect them, then that's the best way to go along in this world. So and that's kind of how I try to do it is, and I know it doesn't always come off that way. I mean, I know that it's tattoos and earrings and bleached hair and loud and fast and all this kind of stuff that that wouldn't sometimes get the perspective. But as I become older, you know, everybody knows, like, for instance, the show, you know, Tournament of Champions or Guys Grocery Games or whatever. It's just I'm just out there to champion my my brothers and sisters. I just want to help them just give, give, get, you know, if you give, you're going to get much more back in life. So. And you do that all the time. Um, when I started the Comedy Store in 1976, uh, Dave Letterman was there. And all of a sudden, Dave was revolutionary, and everybody was trying to do their imitation of Dave Letterman. And then a few years later, Robin Williams comes in, and everybody tries to do their impersonation of Robin Williams. So when people come and pitch me shows, these are the two things I get. I'm the next Anthony Bourdain, or I'm the next Guy Fieri, okay? And my response to them is, we already have those people. We don't need another one. Go figure out something original. You are original. You are who you are. Uh, you kind of march to the beat of a different drum. I've known you for 15 years. I thought I knew everything about you. I've learned so much in the last hour. My head's ready to explode. <laughs> and, and you've had passion and determination, and you've been able to overcome obstacles. There's one thing I want to ask you about that I never knew about you, about getting bucked off a horse when you were a kid. Tell me about that. And did that influence your life? Oh, yeah. You know, my dad is, my dad's my, you know, that, that's my superhero. He's my favorite chef. He's my, you know, my dad is my, you know, I don't even know what to say. But, um, yeah, we were coming, we were in the mountains, packing our, with our horses. We'd pack into the, into the, into the hills for uh, a week, take a mule, load it up, take our horses, load them up, and pack into the mountains. I mean, middle of nowhere. And we were coming back, uh, coming out of the hills on our way, you know, down the mountain to come out, you know, it's like 10 miles, 20 miles into the wilderness. And we go through this, um, this meadow and one of the horses stepped on a beehive in the ground and all the horses started getting stung. And my horse started getting my horse, Joey, uh, the Sapalusa got stung and started bucking. And I'm going rodeo, you know, I'm maybe 10 and that's going rodeo and bounce me off and land on my head and knock my wind, knock the wind out of me. I was crying. And uh, once we got all the shit back on the horses and got everything kind of picked up, my dad said, Let's go. saddle up, let's go. I'm not getting back on that horse. Get on the horse. I'm not getting on that horse. You get on the goddamn horse. <laughs> so now it turns into a real brawl. You know, and I used to, I never backtalked my parents, but I definitely got, you know, I definitely pissed my dad off enough and he gets off of his horse and he says, you know, you're going to get, there's some words in there. You're going to get on that horse or I'm going to tie you on that. You get on it. You know, I'm going to walk. <laughs> you're not. So he chased me around the field for a few minutes and I got back on that horse. So overcoming obstacles, 
uh, is important, I think, to become successful. I, a couple of things here. The worst thing ever said to me, I was in Las Vegas and a lady came up to me and said, oh my God, you're that guy on Food Network. I said, yeah. She said, man, you are so ugly. Like in person, you're, you're a little better looking, but you're the, one of the most unattractive humans I've ever seen in my entire life. Why are you on television? Okay. And I had no idea how to respond to that. Okay. You let your wife talk to you that way in public? <laughs> so that was minor. You open up this restaurant in New York and you get bashed, you get killed. Now, what people don't know is it was one of the most successful restaurants in the country, making more money than, you know, anybody could. But, but there was this one review that just this thing, thing destroyed you. And the next day you're on the Today Show defending it. And here's the thing that always blew me away. It really never seemed to bother you. Uh, New York Times, uh, you know, here's all these big, big time chefs. You're opening in Times Square and they trash you. And, and you were laughing at them, okay? How, how do you build up that kind of confidence where you just go, screw them, I'm fine. If, people, if they don't want to come, they don't have to come. Uh, but there's you know, millions of people who apparently do, so screw them. If you came to me, Mark, and you told me, and you have, you've told me stuff in my career about how I'm doing or what I should pay attention to or so forth, I listen. Um, let's, take the, let's take the position of who's telling me this. We've been open for two months. Nobody does a review on a restaurant in two months. You definitely have somebody that's got a, you know, uh, an agenda to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, do I think the restaurant was perfect? By no means. Do I think the restaurant has it had its problems? Without question. Do I think that there was a, a show being put on there? Without question. So not that it doesn't bother me. Of course, you know, anything bo bothers you. It's just, how am I going to, how am I going to go on with it? Uh, bullshit's bullshit, you know? And if somebody has got something to say, say it, say well, they're paying you to write that crap, write it. You know, I don't have any, well, what am I going to do about it? And I didn't go to defend it. I went back to, I, I went to go, you know, the today show called and asked if, if I wanted, I was flying home. It, the review came out. I landed it was, I, I just come from New York midnight. I flew back. I got to California at midnight. The review came out the next morning. I waited until Ryder got up and Hunter got up and said good morning to him, gave him, you know, kiss and told him I had to leave. I, I drove back to San Francisco, jumped on a flight, flew back to New York. And I think Samantha uh, came and, and we did the piece and I made her the food that was, you know, that was, that was talked about. She loved it. I loved it. We laughed about it and we went on. And then on top of it all, I opened 80 more restaurants. I was going to say, how many restaurants do you have in total now? Yeah, I give or take 80, 75, 80. So it's not, you know, and this is what I tell people. I don't take any of it lightly. It's not like it doesn't matter. I'm not oblivious. You know, you just have to choose to take on the things that you want to, that you want to fight about and take on the things you want to change. If I had felt that there was some validity and there was valid aspects of what was written, of course, we're two months old. You know, it's not like we didn't go and, you know, and continue to improve ourselves. Restaurants, that's what we do. You know, we always have to, you know, so it's just it, so much of it, Mark, is perspective and choosing what avenue you want to take. Am I going to get hung up on shit like that? I got a lot of other stuff to go worry about than that, you know?
Let's talk about giving back. Uh, we had some pretty bad forest fires up in uh, California. You were out there cooking on a regular basis, helping people. You personally raised, I think, over $22 million so far for the restaurant industry during COVID. Is this a true story? I heard uh, through the grapevine that you were calling uh, CEOs of corporations and saying you need to write a check. Is that a true story? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a, that was a full on. I made 43 videos one night. Uh, no, I was not drinking. Uh, <laughs> I got my real, my, my uh, restaurant attorney, a guy named Riley, Riley Larson, Largison, who does all my restaurant deals. He knew all these people. He knew, he knew how to get the, the phone numbers for Jeff Bezos and Pepsi and all the big heavy hitters. And so I wrote a letter to each one of them, knowing their specific topics of how they interact with the restaurant industry. And I made a video and said, here are the facts. You make this much from the industry. You've done this, you know, you da, 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 da. And millions of employees without jobs, hundreds of thousands, you know, tens of thousands of restaurants closed. We need to raise some money. We need to get some money from, from some people fast. This was like day two of COVID, like when the shutdown just began. And I knew I had two projects that I wanted to do. One, I want to do a documentary, which we did. And I wanted to raise this money. And I told my dad what I was doing. My dad said, how much money are you going to raise? I said, $100 million. He says, okay, that's a good number. Go for it. So I, I made the videos, each one of them specifically to those CEOs. And then I sent them to Riley. And Riley, uh, no, Riley gave me the number. And I texted them and sent them to these people. And Lori and Ryder and Hunter were here at the house and they were kind of laughing that, you know, I'm making these like, you know, where are you going to go with this? And I said, no, I'm really going to get these to people. People are going to listen. And I told him, I said, I'm going to promise you one thing. I'll make sure that the industry knows who gave the money when this is all done. Okay. I'll make sure that they know and who didn't. So which, which list do you want to be on? You know? <laughs> and so I made that, we sent them out that night. The next morning I was driving to the ranch and Reed, my manager calls me, you know, Reed. Reed says, you got a second? I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, what? And he goes, well, you want to pull over? I said, oh, shit, Reed. Is everything all right? He goes, oh, yeah. It's all right. He says, but you uh, you definitely poked the, the, the nest. I said, what is, stop with the, what does that mean? He goes, Pepsi just gave us a million dollars. I said, what? Unbelievable. And I still tell you now, Mark, it still gives me goosebumps. I said, I got goosebumps what? when you just told me. He says, Pepsi gave a million dollars. He goes, matter of fact, I have them on the phone. They want to talk to you. I... So we talk. They said, we love this. Thanks for letting us be involved. We're... I said, just so you know, I went after Coke too. So please don't be upset if Coke gives me money. Coke gave us half a million. So I'm driving over the, I mean, I'm out of my mind. A million dollars has come in. And I'm driving over the hill to the ranch and there's no cell service. So when I got to the ranch, Reed calls me again, says, you sitting down? I said, Jesus, Reed, did they take the money back? And he goes, no, Uber Eats just gave you $2 million. Oh my God. I said, what the, f I mean, by really? the end of the day, Mark, we had $8 million by the end of the day. And the National Restaurant Association was my partner with this. And I needed someone to help me because I can't, I mean, how, how am I going to disperse $8 million to people? You know, who? 
So the National Restaurant Association had a really good system about how they were going to get the money out to people. And uh, the money just kept coming in. And it just kept coming in. And we got up to just about $25 million. That was the final number. 24.8, I think, was the last number. 43,000 grants went out. $500 grants. 43,000 of them went out. I run into people all the time tell me that they got the money. And they just said, and, you know, and the, and the thing was, this $500 doesn't change the world. But what it did is it gave people that big hug. The industry's been great to everybody. You know, we yeah. celebrate the restaurants. We do all these things we do. And uh, it was a chance for the you know, industry's never asked for help. You know, we're the ones everybody goes to for the gift certificates and the free this and the discounts and the blah, 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 blah. Listen to all the worries and the issues that people have. And so the restaurant industry's never asked for anything. And here was our chance to help them. So pretty amazing. And the documentary, which is going to air uh, on Food Network, I think on the 27th of December, but also on the yeah. Discovery Plus, you can see it on there. I have so many favorite stories about you and me, but my favorite story probably of all time is a uh, guy likes to get me uh, liquored up from time to time. And he had some uh, Johnny Walker something. I don't know what it was. We were at his house. He had come and done a, uh, I was either a restaurant or dinner impossible. Yeah. And, um, so me and uh, a chef who I worked with, who we won't name because I don't want to put him in bad shape. And, and a few of us got uh, so liquored up that we couldn't drive back to the hotel. Guy calls the police department and cops come to the house and drive our cars back to the hotel. <laughs> I mean, that's clout. Okay. You can either raise $25 million or you can call your local police department and have them drive your friends back. I mean, oh, people love uh, hey, listen, uh, I, I thought I knew everything about you. I've learned so much. Determination, focus, obstacles that people overcome are all about success. For those who are looking uh, for advice on how to reach their goals, what would you say to them? Surround yourself with really good people. I, I share the success and the thank yous as much as I can. You know, I, my, my nickname, everybody, for, for you that don't know, for Mark is Obi-Wan. Mark was the first person, you know, you were the first person that gave me advice. I had no idea how to handle navigate through this. I flew down. You took me to my first agent meeting. You know, you picked me up in your car. Still got that Lexus, by the way. <laughs> you always made fun of me with that. No, I, I have not I have a newer Lexus now. <laughs> you guys should have seen this thing. The Smithsonian wanted it. Anyhow. So Mark picks me up, but it's that thing, you know, you surround yourself with really good people. My team inside of knuckle sandwich the greatest people in the world, you know, my wife, my kids, my friends. I mean, I have friends that, you know, there's the old saying is a friend will help you move. My friends will help you move a body. You know, <laughs> these, I, I've got the best people in the world. I'm surrounded by great people. So, you know, um, that's, uh, that I think really, in my opinion is, is the really the best thing. I, I think that has all the difference in the world. I really think that's all the difference in the world. Cause I don't think I'm, the smartest guy, and I'm definitely not the most talented guy. But when you have a producer like Mark Disson, and you you keep people like that very close, and Brian Lando, and you have these powerful players that you create that wonder twin power of, you know, and you you make these things. I, I attribute it all, all to all to my friends. I love you, my friend. Very kind of you to spend this much time. I know you're busy as hell and you got many things to do, but this means so much to me. And thank you for spreading the word, the wisdom and the intelligence uh, to others who hopefully will take this advice and uh, use it to uh, their best interest as well. You be well and be safe. 
Mark Summers Unwraps is a production of Believe Limited, created by me, Mark Summers, and Jessica Richmond. Produced by Keith Corneluck and Jessica Richmond. Executive produced by Patrick James Lynch and Ryan Geelan. Post-production support from Joshua Sterling Bragg and Believe Limited. Don't forget to subscribe or follow the show on your favorite podcast player. And if you really love it, why don't you leave us a rating and a review? Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Mark Summers Unwraps.